Thank you all for coming this afternoon. Uh, my name is Eric Karpolis. I'm a new Bolinas resident, relatively, uh, and I help put together this uh, community forum on Lyme disease for today. We've, uh, many of us were just at uh, the screening of a film called Under Our Skin, a film made by Andy Abrahams Wilson, and we're joined by him now here at Commonweal with Wynne Bertrand, who is a uh, physician family practice physician in Santa Rosa with Gordon Medical Associate, Associates. Uh, Wynne sees a large proportion of uh, patients who have Lyme disease or other autoimmune suppression uh, diseases. And I'm just grateful for all of you for coming. Um, I just thought I'd say a little bit at the beginning that uh, I am not uh, an expert by any means. I'm not somebody who has Lyme disease or even who knows somebody uh, very closely who has Lyme disease. But I saw this film uh, over a year ago, and in, in me it brought up reminiscences of the uh, HIV situation uh, 20, 25 years ago. And the idea of uh, an infectious disease that was targeting a certain part of the population that was not uh, receiving uh, the attention that should have been warranted, where a certain part of the medical community had to struggle to uh, get funding and to address this issue. These are all the things that seem to be repeating themselves now with Lyme. Uh, Lyme is a very uh, complex disease in and of itself. I happen to see it as a springboard for a way in which the medical community can approach the idea of disease in general. So I see it very specifically as Lyme, but I also see it about how we, uh, we treat and how the, it's come to the point where really uh, the individual patient now has to become almost a consumer and you have to learn how to shop around for your own health care. Uh, and it's a, a state in which um, I thought would be worthy of bringing to the attention of of the West Marin public to a greater degree to increase the education because uh, this is the kind of community that will respond to uh, such things as uh, insurance companies refusing to pay for treatment for specious reasons. reasons. Uh, anyway, all of these, uh, as somebody says in the film, uh, Lyme is, is not just a, a, a biological disease, it's also a political disease and an economic disease. So without further ado, I'd like to... Uh, Again, introduce Andy and Wynn, and I think we'll begin by uh, Wynn. I was I was wondering, as a physician, uh, if you could speak a little bit about your response to uh, to the, the content of the film. Uh, well, I think the film is really important. Um, Lyme disease is uh, it's an unusual disease in that it's essentially not recognized by mainstream medical doctors. So the Infectious Disease Society of America or the um, the AMA, the American Medical Association, they don't believe that there can be a chronic Lyme disease. If, if it's not treated within and cured within about two or three weeks, then it isn't Lyme disease in, in their opinion. And this flies in the face of what I see on a daily basis in my practice. And not just, it's not just me, but really hundreds if not thousands of doctors across the country. And uh, it's, it's a huge... It's a huge, uh, more than a disaster. I mean, it, it's, um, 
for patients, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. And so the movie is so important in just raising our awareness of what's really going on and uh, helping people to see that there are treatment options and, and even help to understand the diagnosis when it's a dilemma. So it's, it's a really important film. And Andy, would you tell us a little bit about how you came to make the film? Well, sure. That's always the first question mm-hmm. that I'm asked. <laughs> and I think the question itself is revealing because um, uh, what it is saying is why would anybody want to make a film about this? I mean, that, this sort of assumptions is that, that this is not an important issue. It's not a known issue. And certainly that was where I was coming from. And sort of, I, I look at myself as the sort of the trajectory, in terms of the trajectory of the public, um, from very little knowledge, from a lot of uh, assumptions that I had to, to where I am now. The only thing that I knew about Lyme disease was that my twin sister had it uh, years ago. She lives in upstate New York. And I just remember she was sick for a while and couldn't get help. And um, was going to doctor after doctor and was just sort of, I, I just looked at her and I just think she's being uh, um, sort of tired and lazy. And um, I just, I, the images of her, her just being sitting on the couch. And so I didn't, I guess I didn't really take it that seriously. I know she eventually got helped. Um, she, was, she was diagnosed properly and, and treated. And that's pretty much all I knew about Lyme disease until a friend of mine out here in Marin got very sick and uh, nobody knew it was wrong with her. She was diagnosed with MS and then ALS and then finally Lyme disease. And So I was shocked that Lyme disease could do that. The thing that was making my sister tired and achy was the same thing that could be putting my friend in a potentially um, uh, fatal um, situation. So I, I, it just opened my eyes and I began to look at it. And quite frankly, I usually don't go into this, into this detail when, when, when people ask me, but since we're all a big family here, um, what, one of the things that sort of captivated me was, was, um, there was talk about Lyme disease being a, a bioweapon or, a, or engineered or re-engineered as a, as a bioweapon uh, at an animal research laboratory off the coast of Long Island. And um, there was even um, a, a Nazi doctor who worked there who had experimented on using ticks as vectors to spread biological agents. And so um, I'm sort of a sucker for good conspiracy th- theory, and so I, um, so that was that was part of that was how you were bitten. That was part <laughs> of how I was bitten. I mean, so it was it was sort of that, but but plus the 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 fact that what I was finding was was thousands and thousands of people with the same story um, that they're falling through the cracks of the healthcare system. They're not getting diagnosed. They're not getting helped. They're not getting insurance coverage, and they're being told that, that this is all in their head. And so it was a, a real sense of, um, I think, curiosity, but also compassion um, for the people who were sick and needed help. So it wasn't hard for you probably to hook up with patients? No, it was uh, incredibly easy. Um, they came out of the woodwork, and 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 not really the, the woodwork as much as the network. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Internet has provided a, 
uh, an amazing tool for for patient um, advocacy, and that's I think that's that's really how we tapped into this community, and it was incredibly successful. And that also, incidentally, is um, I think uh, brings up an issue that Wynn brought up, which was uh, just that of, of of patients taking their health into their own hands, and that's seen as a big threat to our patriarchal medical system. Um, a lot of the the, the uh, so-called internet activists happen to be women too, and so um, I, I, this is this is where I think Lyme disease and this issue is right at the sort of um, uh, juncture of of uh, a real shift in the way we look at at um, not just disease but also medicine and and um, um, and patient care and research and research sure now when um it's been uh, kind of a common knowledge or hearsay that uh, in California, Lyme disease is not really yet in epidemic proportions. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, some numbers and about uh, how much that is really just a certain kind of denial. I know that also ties into the idea that uh, the boreal um, is something that can be dormant for a long time, and we can be infected and not know about it, so that's a very hard answer to, question to answer. But, I mean, what, do you, what would you say, what do you know about uh, um, Yeah, it's, it's interesting that I hear that a lot, and, and that's something that lots of, of doctors are, um, are educated. That's what we learn in medical school, and that's what we learn at our continuing medical education conferences, is that this is an illness of Connecticut and of uh, New York, and et cetera. And it's, it's really interesting because it's been reported in most, if not every state, in the country. And all states. <laughs> all states, right. And, and so <clears throat> the message continues to be taught to doctors and, and medical students. However, it's just wrong. There's, the scientific evidence denies it. Uh, so this is a, you know, one part of the many parts about this um, the response to this illness that it's not scientific. Uh, you know, just in the practice, in my practice alone, I see maybe two uh, new cases a day. Mm -hmm. And this is over the past four or five years that I've really been doing this kind of work. That's a lot of people in California. Um, so it's, you know, there's something going on. It's, it's difficult to tell exactly what's going on because when I treat someone, I know, I, I know for sure that they have certain symptoms or I believe my patients. When someone comes in who's a high-functioning person and they tell me, look, I have muscle pains, joint pains, I can't think as clearly, my heart's racing, I'm really tired, and you know, I don't know what's going on. I, I believe them until I have good evidence to suggest otherwise. And I do the tests. Uh, sometimes the Lyme tests come back positive. When that happens, it's in some ways a relief because there's some objective data, but a lot of times the tests aren't positive, and uh, that's uh, another story right there. But uh, it's, I don't know sometimes if I'm treating Lyme or am I treating some other infectious agent, but I do know that when my patients respond to antibiotics and the symptoms go away, or are much better in a period of time that we treat, we were treating an infection. And so I, I have no doubt, and it just blows my mind that anyone would suggest otherwise. 
And uh, Lyme disease or Borrelia species are common not just in this country, but in, in Europe, in Asia, and Northern Africa. And so to think that it couldn't be in California is, is a very bizarre thinking. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the story um, about the testing. Mm -hmm. uh, as you were saying, that, that was a different story. Right. Um, the test for Lyme disease, I believe, has only a 50% um, viability in terms of you can test, you can have the uh, uh, evidence of the organism and test negative, or you can, it's a false positive. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about it. Right, uh, right. That. Okay, so uh, I think it's important to understand how the real how the testing was designed initially so Lyme the awareness of Lyme in this country is a relatively recent phenomenon and that it really started in the 70s and and at that time the medical societies and and the CDC were really trying to understand exactly what Lyme was and what Lyme wasn't and designed a test that is referred to as the Western blot that's still used today and the test was designed to be what, in medical terms, is called very specific, but not very sensitive. And what that means is that if it's positive, it's very likely that it's a true positive, but it misses a large percentage of people. And it was designed that way for research purposes. It wasn't designed to pick up uh, cases in the general population. And for that reason, uh, even on the CDC website today, you can go and look, and it says that this test is... Uh, and par uh, the diagnosis is in part based on this test, but really Lyme is a clinical diagnosis, mm -hmm. and the test is not always accurate. When you look at the research, there are, I think last time I looked, 20 or 30 studies at least, there's probably more than that, but I, I looked at, at 20 or 30 studies that showed in chronic Lyme, 50% of people from which the Lyme spirochete can be cultured are negative in the test, mm -hmm. 50%. So there's a problem. <laughs> there's a problem with the tests. Yeah, yeah. There's a. I mean, that's that's the big problem. Um, and um, there's 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 other reasons why it's not it's not um, picking it up. There's there's many different strands of of the bacteria. Um, the most the most standard tests only test for one strain, I believe. Um, and also, this is a blood test, and the bacteria that causes Lyme disease um, um, is, does not stay in the blood. So um, it's, it's been referred to like sort of a needle in a haystack. And, um, uh, well, the, uh, the spirochete actually can hide itself in tissue. It can hide itself in the brain. So it, a blood test would not necessarily be conclusive is what you Correct, in the central nervous system and joints and ovial fluid. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's complicated. Yeah. It's it's um, it is complicated. Yeah. One of the one of the questions you asked earlier, I, I didn't answer, but I was just reminded by what you said. They, um, there's now pretty pretty good for me convincing evidence that Lyme can exist in a in a cystic form. And some of the original research came out of one lab. It was a multi. Can you explain that term for oh, us? Oh sure, right. Um, so. Um, uh, under uh, favorable circumstances, Lyme prefers to exist in a spirochete form. It looks a little bit like a corkscrew. However, in unfavorable circumstances, such as when antibiotics are administered, I mean, that's the primary circumstance that I can imagine that's unfavorable, uh, Lyme can essentially um, 
hole itself up in a little cave that it makes. And a, so a cyst is a little bit like a cocoon that a caterpillar might create or something like that and just wraps itself in an impregnable shield and becomes very small and is not is dormant essentially is not metabolically active and therefore isn't susceptible to the antibiotics and from that state when the coast is clear if there are no antibiotics when conditions are favorable the lime spirochete can then re-emerge and when I first heard this it sounded pretty far-fetched to me and there was one uh, research team that was doing that was doing you know I mean I thought it was at least a uh, something to consider, uh, but uh, this has been duplicated by a second international team. It wasn't just one lab, but scientists from many different labs across several nations that reproduced this work. And so I think it's quite convincing, and that can explain what I see clinically. And that sometimes people are treated, and the symptoms resolve; they seem to be better, and several months later, the symptoms return. Um, is this the biofilm, that, uh, the cystic? Now that's no. a whole nother. <laughs> that's a whole nother let's, trick. Let's get some definition on the, the difference between those two, if we can. Sure. <clears throat> well, um, the the biofilm model is is something that um, that Alan McDonald in the film was was researching. That was sort of his aha discovery. Um, and and the idea behind that is that is that the Lyme disease exists in or can exist in a biofilm, which is sort of like um, the, a protective coating that um, um, uh, around, around the, the bacteria that keep it from being detected um, uh, by antibodies and that also keep it from being uh, attacked by antibiotics. So this is a, it's a common, uh, biofilms are, are common, it, it's a common um, it's an accepted, what would you call, uh, paradigm in, in, in uh, bacteriology. Uh, other, other bacterial in, infections exist in biofilms, and so why it was such a great discovery for Alan McDonald or hypothesis was that if you can prove that, that Borrelia burgdorferi exists in a biofilm, then it, it dismantles the whole uh, objection to, to chronic Lyme because it is by definition chronic. In, if, if there is a biofilm, it is by definition chronic. Um, so that's, that's what the biofilm model is. It's different from, uh, from the cyst model. The cyst, is, the cyst is the spirochete itself, wraps itself in a cocoon. The, the biofilm is that it's created um, uh, as a sort of protective coating for the, a colony of bacteria. And um, while we're on that, that topic, um, the biofilm research is, is continuing. And um, unfortunately, Alan McDonald is, is not continuing it. He, he was diagnosed with a, a form of, um, I want to call it a form of Alzheimer's for lack of a better, better word. It's called frontotemporal mm. brain deterioration. And um, he's, he's forgotten his research. Mm. He's completely out of the picture now. Um, he stopped working. They sold their house. Um, um, it's you know, personally devastating to me, um, but also collectively de devastating because he was so brilliant and um, was really a, a pioneer in, in this research. 
There's enormous pathos in the film when you see this man who devoted so much time to this research uh, walking down the steps to the basement of his house and being uh, committed to this work that he was doing with no funding. Mm-hmm. You know, this was entirely what he did after his uh, day job, mm-hmm. which was dealing with patients and, 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 and research. To go into this, mic- this microscope that he had bought 20 years ago for this specific reason and to just think that this is in this man's basement in New York is, you know, the research, this is it, this is the sum of what we know, what we've learned in 20 years about uh, this barricade. It's just, it's, it's yeah. remarkable. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a true hero. I, I wouldn't say it's the sum. I mean, there's a lot of people doing research. Um, he's, he's the character, you know, in, in our film, and he really is a, pione- a true pioneer. And he was on the forefront of a lot of the, the research around congenital Lyme disease and um, making connections with other neurodegenerative illnesses. So um, it's a big, big loss. And, and it's quite interesting um, that he's been working with this his whole professional life and that he himself is now struck with a, a neurodegenerative illness. And, you know, you just you, you have to wonder where, what, the, what infectiously is going on yeah. here. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about, um, you know, pathogens and, and uh, vector-borne disease. Um, what would you say... Um, is, for instance, the connection? I mean, or could one medically make a connection between the contraction of such a, a disease after uh, 20, 25 years of, of working with, uh, just with samples of, uh, of, of patients with uh, Lyme disease, of, uh, of Borrelia? Well, um, anything is possible. Uh, so uh, I think the probably the bigger problem is that I believe he lived in an endemic area, um, on Long Island. Yeah. So his chances of exposure to Lyme or other tick-borne infections are huge. Uh, I'm sure. And, and his wife had Lyme disease, yeah. and his sister had Lyme disease. So there was uh, a study I read, and I believe I, I think it was a Connecticut in Connecticut. And the healthy population among people who never thought they had had a tick-borne infection, I think it was 22, 24% were positive, had antibodies to Babesia, which is a different tick-borne infection, meaning that they had been exposed to it in the past. They may not have had symptoms. They may not have known they were infected, but that's huge. Mm-hmm. And so most people living in that part of the world have been exposed. Some people have gotten sick and others haven't. And... With a lot of these kinds of, of syndromes or problems or diseases or whatever you want to call them, Alzheimer's, a lot of the autoimmune diseases, this um, unusual type of dementia that Dr. McDonald has, we don't know the cause. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look really carefully, you'll find that Western docs don't know the cause or really the cure of many diseases. Um, but it, uh, can Lyme be playing a part in this? Absolutely. So uh, take autoimmune diseases, for example. And so this would include things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, and a lot of different autoimmune diseases like that. Uh, It takes not just genetics, not just genetic predisposition, but also an environmental trigger. And an environmental trigger could be a toxin, could be an infection, could be a number of, of different things like that. But infections are implicated 
in every autoimmune illness, and the, the researchers, the standard medical researchers, would agree to that. And so, can Lyme be a part of it? Well, uh, you know, absolutely. And so, a number, probably disproportionate. It's hard to know because I just, you know, I see what I see in front of me. But in the practice that, in my practice, and my, you know, I, what I see is many people with MS and Lyme, many people with rheumatoid arthritis and Lyme and Parkinson's and Lyme, and a lot of the symptoms from these degenerative or autoimmune diseases that should not get better with antibiotic treatment do get better. Mm -hmm. They may not go away completely, but I I think, and I mean, what I've seen is that infections are a trigger. Let me ask you a question. Sure. Um, Because one of the questions we get, or one of the responses we get, is is that antibiotics help um, because they have an anti-inflammatory quality or just because of the placebo effect. So from what you've seen in your practice, how does that factor into it? Okay, well, that's really reaching. <laughs> that's, the, that's the argument that, that doctors pull out of their bag when they can't explain the, the good results. And the, the placebo response is powerful and, and really important, and you have to understand that <laughs> Uh, but it doesn't account for someone with years of illness or months of illness that has a persistent, sustained recovery after using these antibi- antibiotics whose tests of inflammation return to normal, whose markers of immune system dysregulation return to normal after treatment. And so if any anti-inflammatory I know, like ibuprofen, it works while it's in your body, and when it leaves the body, it stops working. So if someone has a sustained response to treatment, that's no longer just an anti-inflammatory response. Let's talk a little bit about um, practicalities. I mean, all of us in this room now live in a community, we live in the state, in the country, where Lyme disease is rampant. Uh, If we don't have symptoms, if we're not symptomatic, is there something that we should worry about? Um, is there a way in which we should be tested to have a p- potential uh, indication of, of future symptoms? Uh, that's one part of it. The other part is um, if, you, if you do test positively, um, how would you, what kind of course would you recommend uh, people to go through in, in regards to their local health care availability and, and, and facility? Mm-hmm. Can I start with the first part please, of that? Please. I just want to. Um, I think one thing that I always try to bring out is 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 I don't want the film to perpetuate fear, mm-hmm. and it's it's not about um, you know the 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 monster is out there and we need to protect ourselves from it and you know an overarching theme for me is that is that the is how we we've, we've separated ourselves from nature. And this is really, this is a result of it. It's so that we, the, we don't need to separate ourselves even more and um, think of the danger as outside of us. We, our bodies are um, a reflection of the, of the earth body and of the, the, the pollution in the environment is, is the imbalance in the environment is, is reflecting itself inside of us. So um, I think that's the first, the first thing that I, I really want to stress. And um, my, my feeling or my, my sense based on the research that I've done is that um, 
is that many, many people may be infected. They, they may have been exposed. Um, I myself was challenged by Dr. Wormser in the film to get tested, to get a test at Igenix, the Igenix laboratory. He just believes that, that all the tests come out positive, mm -hmm. that they're... Um, that they turn out f false positives for financial purposes, for profit. Um, I did get a test there, and it, it came back negative, though it showed there were, there were some positive bands. It showed past infection, which makes complete sense. I grew up in New Jersey. I, I, Your twin I'm sister a, has Lyme. I'm a tree hugger. I've, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. Mm -hmm. and so, but I haven't been sick. And so I'm not going to, I don't think that the response is to, to be worried or to, be, or to, to take um, medication. And I, I think the answer really is, is awareness and knowledge. Um, but I, I just want to say that I don't want to create a, uh, an atmosphere of, of hysteria. Well, I didn't mean to indicate that fear was a response coming mm -hmm. from the film. I mean, I think uh, um, caution Mm -hmm. is it's a cautionary tale in many ways because yeah. most people who watch it will not be infected or will not be symptomatic mm -hmm. but i think it's uh it's but they, a but they might be you know but they might but be exactly. for all we know most people many you know it's possible that um that um much of the population is infected and i think what what win was talking about before about the that we don't understand that we still don't really have a grasp of what what um, factors are working together. They're co-infections, environmental factors, um, genetic susceptibility. Uh, so it's it's a it's it's I think also at once um, uh, confusing, but it's also a really exciting moment in medicine. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's one message that I I really want everyone to hear is. There's no need to have fear <laughs> um, of anything, really. But in, in particular, um, Lyme disease, there's, you have to educate yourself about it. You have to uh, respond appropriately. But there's no need to become afraid. And so all the time, folks come in with Lyme disease, with symptoms. And their partners, their children, their parents, or whatnot, ask to get tested to see if they have been exposed, if, if they would test positive. And a, a lot of folks who are not symptomatic, who feel very well, test positive at, with Igenix. And this is a, um, one of the, would be considered an alternative Lyme diagnostics company that's, that's w more sensitive, at the very least. It's more sensitive than the standard CDC test. And so it's used a lot, and, and I use it in my practice. So what does it mean if someone is antibody positive to Lyme? Should they be treated even if they feel well? Um, are they going to have problems 20 years down the line? Are they going to have Alzheimer's because of this? And, you know, that, this is a, these are really good questions, and I don't think we have the answer for them, except I have some inherent faith in, in our immune system uh, and in our capacity to deal with these things. I know that for sure that people are exposed and do not get chronically sick. Not everyone gets chronically sick. And also people who um, have been infected by Lyme and are, who come and are treated early, sometimes their problems continue. Even after I know if there's an infection in their body, it must be eliminated because they've received 
months and months of IV antibiotics, multiple antibiotics. What is, what is their story? Why do some of these people respond to stem cell infusions, which can modulate the immune system? And why do they get better from that when they didn't get better from antibiotics? So you know, the, the picture is very complex and has to do with not just the infection, but our immune system and um, our overall health, our exposure to environmental toxins, our exposure to stress uh, has to do with you know, uh, lots, of, lots of different factors. Michael, did you have... Well, first of all, it's a fascinating conversation, and what comes to mind, and we haven't really talked about this yet as explicitly, is that there's this whole set of illnesses called contested diseases, of which Lyme's disease is, Lyme disease is one, and you know, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, so on, all cluster together. Um, now, just recently, there's... Uh, science news that they may have isolated a factor in chronic fatigue syndrome, I believe. So um, that's a new piece. But what strikes me about all of this is, and having worked in this field for close to 30 years of just contested diseases, there's a how can I describe it? There's a kind of a cultural process by which contested diseases rise and fall among that part of the population that has a complex symptomatic experience. Um, and so um, there's a constant effort, understandable, by people to uh, find some name, some diagnosis for these complex experiences. Now, I'm not at all saying that they are psychosomatic. Uh, I am saying that an emerging model of health that we talk a lot about in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment is the ecological paradigm of health, where different people develop the same disease or syndrome for different reasons. And therefore, it's quite plausible, since they develop it for different reasons, that they may respond to different interventions that are supportive of recovery. Mm -hmm. So when, when you talk about the role of chemical contaminants and stress and so on and so forth, if, you have, if you're positive for Lyme's disease, but let's say you don't test positive, but you've been exposed, you have a, a body burden of toxic chemicals, you're under stress, uh, and that there are uh, uh, psychogenic dimensions of this, uh, not that it's a psychogenic disease, but that there's a psychogenic vector as well as a, a gen general stress vector and an infectious disease vector and a chemical sensitivity vector and so forth. And so you end up with this whole category of contested diseases and people are shopping both for a treatment and to understand, in some sense, uh, where they fit in this pattern. Yeah, and I, I, think it's, I think the question is really to contest disease in the first place, mm -hmm. because we, I think we, we're moving away from the paradigm of, of one, um, one pathogen, one disease, and one cure. And I think this is a perfect sort of uh, um, model um, for that. 
And I mean, I, in, in a way, I almost feel guilty talking about Lyme disease as Lyme disease because I think the people who are working in it understand it not as just one, even just one pathogen, but think of it in terms of a complex. Um, so, you know, yet at the same time, we have to, you know, we have to communicate in symbols and language and and this is the language that we have, and this is the film that we have that can bring about an awareness. And I think there's a lot of steps sort of beyond that in, in terms of addressing the larger issues of, of illness and medicine. And the film, therefore, is well named by being called Under Our Skin, because there's not just one thing under our skin. We don't know entirely what, what's happening, uh, the complexity of the, uh, the, uh, the makeup of, of what we find in our bloodstreams. When I entered the stream that we're talking about in 1972, when I came out here from teaching at Yale and, and started a school for troubled kids because I'd seen a little girl who'd been diagnosed retarded until somebody took her off wheat and dairy products, and she turned out to be learning disabled but not retarded, and it was so striking that I gave up my teaching job to start a school out here to look at the role of nutrition in, the, uh, in food and chemical sensitivities in the learning and behavior disorders of children. And, um, and so at that moment, Ben Feingold's uh, food additive diet for hyperactive learning disabled children was a very visible thing. And behind Feingold was an extraordinary physician named Theron Randolph, who was uh, a clinical ecologist who was looking at food and chemical sensitivities at a much deeper level than Feingold was. And so I traveled around the country looking at these places that were uh, treating uh, the contested diseases of that period of time, particularly the contested diseases of children, uh, with diet, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with supplements. Uh, that was also a period of time when... Uh, there was a big question about whether schizophrenia could be treated with nutritional supplementation. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, I've, I've spent uh, these past uh, 38 years in the stream of contested diseases. And so I watch this film with that history of the different nomenclatures that rise and fall around these complex symptomatic syndromes. Uh, of which, and uh, my experience is that there tends to be some truth, at least, in all of them. Um, well, well, another one, one of the one most thing common that... now, let me just say this, most common now, which we've spent a lot of fo time focused on, is the, the increase in the autistic spectrum diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And again, one finds parents doing this unbelievable range of interventions with autistic spectrum kids. You know, is there a real increase in the number of kids? It's very similar to the Lyme disease. Is there an epidemic or not? You know, there's a whole bunch of people say there's not an epidemic, that it's that just that everybody's moving to California for better treatment and because, uh, you know, sort of the definition has shifted. Mm -hmm. so, so it's. I guess I'm saying there's this history in which Lyme's disease... Lyme disease is, is a part of a very complex, long history. The, the one difference is that Lyme disease is, is an infectious agent, is, is infectious, and right. none of those other things, as far as we know, are. Um, and, and I think that that's really an, that's important to point out. Um, because a lot that is, I'm not saying you're using it as a, as a rationalization, but it very often is. 
it's lumped together in a sort of historical perspective in terms of looking at contested diseases or um, 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 sort of catch-all disease, the disease of disease du jour, as um, Dr. Wormser put it. So I, I just think that's that's really important to say. Um, there is we we do know what causes Lyme disease. But isn't it fair to say yes that there there is uh, it, there is an infectious agent. But at least as I hear it, we're also saying sometimes you can identify the infectious agent and sometimes you can't, right? But sometimes that's about identification. Excuse me? That's about identification. But if people have symptom clusters that also fit into other... And by the way, I'm not at all saying they're psychogenic. We've already been talking, Wynn's been talking about the multiple diagnostic categories that people are in, right? So we've already said... Food and chemical sensitivities are very real, you know. Autistic spectrum disorder is very real. Nobody's claiming these are psychogenic. So if, uh, if people for a wide range of genetic, environmental, and other causes cre- uh, enter cis- symptom clusters that get de- diagnosed differently depending on who they go to see, and they're not testing positive for Lyme disease then that sector of it mm-hmm. seems to me mm-hmm. to be more ambiguous than those for whom you can demonstrate in one way or another that um, you know, either, either you can find the vector or with a treatment of antibiotics they reverse and become well. Maybe I can comment yeah. too. Sure. So uh, you know, when, someone, when someone presents in our office and they have fatigue, joint pain, muscle pain, heart palpitations, um, you know, all, all these symptoms, it may be that they have Lyme disease. It may be that they have what would have been called chronic fatigue syndrome and what I'm still at the moment calling chronic fatigue syndrome, which is just a descriptive term. And we use these descriptive terms and we don't know what the heck is really causing it or what the heck is really going on. And so if someone comes in and they respond to antibiotics and they have Lyme disease or some other chronic infection, I'm actually happy because this means that they're going to get maybe all the way better, maybe a percent better, but they're going to get better. It's the folks that don't respond to the antibiotics. I know, I know there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. And as, um, you, know, as in, uh, you mentioned earlier, in science, the... Um, the finding of XMRV, this uh, a new retrovirus that is present in many cases of chronic fatigue syndrome. Maybe that's a piece. Maybe that's one of their players. Uh, but as one of my uh, mentors, in a way, I guess, or someone I look up to, a, a man named Dietrich Klinghart, who's a physician and PhD as well in, in Washington State, he says, the more we look, the more infections we're going to find. And this was called chronic Epstein-Barr virus infection 20 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. I wasn't practicing then. Um, but if we look and, we've, and we test the Epstein-Barr virus titers or the cytomegalovirus antibody titers or many, uh, many of these other herpes family um, viruses, we'll find elevated antibodies that shouldn't be that high in adults. They shouldn't, you know, they, these folks with really high tests. And are these guys a primary cause or are they a result? I think they're a result because you can see that same kind of activation of these viral infections 
even after running a marathon or other major stresses. Uh, but it's something we have to consider. And some of the latest research has showing that in some people, toxins or infections can activate the immune system in a way that's almost like a traditional autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis. But in, folks, in some folks, it seems to present like chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic Lyme syndrome. And that even after the causative agent has been removed, whether the Lyme spirochete has been killed or some people can have these kind of syndromes after mold toxicity, even after the mold has been removed from their environment or from their bodies, they can still have these persistent immune dysfunction states that if you just modulate the immune system, then you can, you can really see some benefits. And so it, it is very complex. Uh, and a part of my practice is actually trying to help people understand that it's not just Lyme. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, in Lyme, it, you know, when folks talk about Lyme, they talk about many of the co-infections, the tick-borne co-infections. It's not just about tick-borne co-infections. Why is it that uh, every autoimmune disease, asthma, infertility, um, you know, diabetes, why has almost every, you know, cancer, almost every chronic persistent illness, why have they gotten so much worse, fourfold, tenfold, double uh, the, the incidents in the last 20 years. We were eating McDonald's 20 years ago. Our diet is, has been bad for longer than 20 years. There's something else that's going on, whether it's ecologic changes that, uh, in, in which new infections are, are becoming more prevalent, or I really think that environmental toxicity, which has changed in the last 20 years, uh, there's something else at play. Well, I, I completely agree with that, and and also, as you mentioned, when the there's good science that sometimes the multiplier impact of uh, of an infectious agent and a chemical exposure can enormously multiply the incidence of a of a disease. So the combination of the increasing load of uh, chemicals in the environment, the changing envi- climate change, and you know, the changing infectious agent environment. And I would add, and I think this is one of the big sleepers now, is the transformation of electromagnetic fields around us. I mean, there's just been an extraordinary transformation of electromagnetic fields. Commonweal is the fiscal agent for something called the Bioinitiative, which an extraordinary researcher named Cindy Sage is the lead person on, which uh, created a, a... a multi-author research statement on the health impacts of electromagnetic fields, particularly cell phones, but not limited to cell phones. And this document in Europe has triggered a tremendous change on, in uh, advisories from the government on cell phone use in general and cell phone use by children. The, the French government literally just came out uh, with a new statement saying that we just have to look at and dial back the whole EMF exposure that we're all bathed in. And because that's invisible to us, it's one of the really transformative effect, you know, things that we're all facing that also has synergistic impacts with chemicals and infectious agents. So we're shifting the whole ecology, and we're dealing with uh, this long history of contested diseases, which are real, and it doesn't make it less real to acknowledge 
that there can be psychogenic components of it. If you understand that the psychogenic is just one vector along with the infectious and the chemical, it seems to me you reduce credibility if we don't acknowledge that the potential of the psychogenic to be part of a whole picture. Absolutely. You know. I was thinking now might be a good time to open up to questions if there are any people in the audience who would like to ask something. Yes? Um, well, I just have a comment. I've been studying one for a while because I have Lyme disease and chronic fatigue. And one thing I want to point out is um, I think people forget about detoxing. And I think from what I've been studying, a lot of people that do have chronic fatigue and Lyme disease don't have as good of an ability to detox as others. And I think, you know, Klinghart talks about that and, and he wants people to treat with the vitamin K2 and then do KPU treatment. And I think that's something um, really important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do you want to respond to that, Mark? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, there are a lot of a lot of people who, you know, they they may have an infection, but they feel better even if you don't treat the infection in part. Okay, now, I'm not saying that if they have an infection, you shouldn't treat it, but some folks cannot tolerate antibiotics. Uh, they're too sensitive, chemically sensitive, or you know, they, you know, for other reasons, they're very allergic. And so, for people who, or they've done antibiotic treatment and they still have symptoms, they may well respond to nutritional interventions that support detoxification, that support different important chemical cycles in their body, methylation cycle, other other cycles that have somehow become depleted or genetically. They were just born with needing more of certain vitamins and minerals in order to detox. And we see people all the time who do infrared sauna or a number of different kinds of detox strategies that feel better. And yeah, I mean, I consider this, I have to consider this, and everyone I see, when, when to do what kind of treatment, because it is, it is a very complex problem. And a chronic infection will induce nutritional deficiencies if there were none to begin with. And I, I just wanted to, to throw out there that to, to remind folks that I'm not a medical professional. I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> and so if you have questions about the film or the filmmaking process, that's always um, a pleasure. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I saw the show and I, I was actually kind of a little weary to see the film, sort of putting it off, even though Lyme has been sort of a, it's been sort of on my mind for over a decade as, as a possibility, something mentioned to me. And, some, and so I didn't necessarily want to see this film, but then I was doing okay until I had this one heart drop in it where it mentioned that idea of transmission. Now that was new to me. And then suddenly, I, mean, I know when you were saying, for instance, like there's really no reason to fear which is one reason, I, one way I think I've been dealing with life in general is I don't feel like I'm carrying a lot of fear with me. But I remember a period decades ago, one AIDS was prevalent. And I remember that fear very acutely. And that what that meant, that whole other, this whole other area of doubt, which came in when it involved other people. And so that was mentioned in the film, and that made my heart just drop. I thought, what does that mean? You know, because it's one thing to think about myself. I mean, I've spent probably more than half my life out, outdoors. I've enjoyed it, loved it, you know, it's my life. I like, I've, I've lived on this earth, in this earth, that's even what I'm doing here. Before I moved to Bolinas, I spent many 
years in Point Reyes, walking to Bolinas from the East Bay, getting away from the city. And so that's my life, and I can deal with those concepts, but when the concept of transmission, I just didn't quite get that in the film, or what, that, what the possibility of that was, or what to think about. Because that brings on a whole other thing, and I don't, I, you know, I don't know what to think of that, so if you could answer anything. Well, I guess my question for you is, I'm, I'm not sure. Is it well, you said, transmittable? Uh, well, that's, it's debatable. I mean, I, I don't think there's no confirmed studies, but I, people who work in the field, a lot of them say that it, anecdotally that seems to be the case. But why were you avoiding the issue? That's what I was wondering. Well, it's my coping mechanism. <laughs> many, many, many years ago I've had, I mean, this, you know, people have thrown things at me in terms of like Epstein Barr. In, in my life I've had many, many um, People, you know, if you go looking, if you have a problem, I find if I go looking around, I usually will find an answer. And after a while, I've sort of decided in my life I got a little tired of finding answers unless I really needed one, you know. So when it came to Lyme's disease, I, like over a decade ago, I was treated with about two months of doxycyclines. Mm -hmm. After several years of having problems, and after which some of them resolved, some of them did not. And actually, only recently have I, have I felt the, the urge to go look for more answers along these lines. I mean, it's just my coping mechanism, I'm saying. So that's, that's the way, you know, I deal with things. Now, of course, I feel, you know, knowledge is power. I just don't know what knowledge is sometimes. And so that's, actually, I have another question, too, outside of the transmissibility. Is, is there a Bible for this thing? Because it was suggested to me that there was a book by Singleton, uh, The Lyme Solution. I don't know if you've heard of that, the book. And I went to go look for it at Barnes and Noble, and it had been pulled for um, to be re-edited, you know, to be updated. And I was just wondering, if, is that still a, a viable thing to go look for? Because I, I mean, that's my approach when I do want to find out about things. I get a book and I just get into it, you know. Be careful what you read. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The um, I'll just speak to your question. What I see and what a lot of practitioners see is an increased incidence among family members and partners of these same kinds of symptoms. And what, what partners or family members share is not just, you know, if it's an intimate partner, then yeah, it could, maybe it was sexually transmitted, but maybe they're in the same environment. Maybe they go hiking in the same places. Maybe, you know, so there are a lot of, a lot of possible explanations. And it hasn't been it hasn't been proven convincingly convincingly that it is sexually transmitted but a lot of people who are in the field think that it could be and spirochetes are very good at burrowing through connective tissue and a famous spirochete that we now don't think of that often as syphilis and it's very obviously sexually transmittable um, so we don't really know and if you don't know, you, you know, you have, to, you have to come to your own conclusions about how you want to respond to that. Uh, but really, it's possible. Um, the second thing is, uh, in terms of what you read about Lyme disease, Lyme disease is, it, it is a contested disease, and in the world of contested diseases, the information doesn't come from uh, primarily from medical establishment researchers, medical doctors, the medical community. It often comes from uh, motivated patients, 
you, you know, other people who are looking into it. And some of that information is really good, and some of it is really inaccurate. And all I spend, I spend a fair amount of time myth-busting about all these kinds of illnesses. There's a new book that has perspective of 13 different practitioners, some MDs and some chiropractors and some lots of different folks. I think it's called Insights into Lyme Disease. And it is, um, it's, it's fair, you know. It's, it gives a good, broad overview of some of the different kinds of thinking. And the guy who really was one of the pioneer doctors, clinicians in treating Lyme disease, Joseph Berscano, mm-hmm. we're all standing on his shoulders mm-hmm. in terms of treatment. He writes a pretty definitive, here's how you approach it with antibiotics guideline. I forget what it's called, but basically... It's called Dr. Dr. Berscano's Diagnostic <laughs> Guidelines or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and but that's... You can find that on our website, Berscano. by the way, under our skin.com. Go to the resources page, uh, the Get Help page, and you'll find a lot of these, these resources. I was concerned about the dog in your movie walking beside the person with the white flag collecting all those tooks. A lot of people are. It's interesting. Me too. Yeah. I don't have anything to report about that dog. But, yeah. A little anecdote. I have a cat who's very dear to me. And one day the cat uh, my cat his tail wasn't as high as it usually is it just was running kind of half mast and he wasn't eating as much and, and just wasn't looking as happy and this continued for several months and I brought him into the vet and the vet did blood work and said there's nothing wrong with your cat and I said hmm I don't know and let it go another three or four months and then the tail dropped all the way down the cat started losing, my cat started losing weight and really lost about 20% of his body weight and I took him back into the vet and said, there's absolutely something wrong. You can't tell me there's nothing wrong. Tell me what's wrong with my cat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our vet, who is fantastic, uh, said, I don't know what's wrong with your cat. It doesn't appear to have cancer, doesn't appear to have kidney disease. And I said, my cat has Lyme disease. I'm sure of it. And, uh, and the vet wasn't particularly comfortable treating what we call treating empirically, which is treating even if the tests are negative. And so I uh, took it upon myself uh, to treat my cat. And the cat got better within 10 days. And so the incidence of tick-borne illness among our pets is higher than the veterinary world thinks as well. Yeah, and, uh, and I'll, I have an anecdote there too. A friend of mine um, here in Marin County has a dog um, that... Um, had had all the telltale symptoms, arthritic symptoms, um, fatigue, etc. And it was only because of her involvement with me and, and the film that she was able to get the dog diagnosed. And um, so the dog, the dog is on antibiotics a lot. And when the dog is on antibiotics, she's doing great. And then she goes off antibiotics in a little in, in a little in a little bit starts some symptoms return so you know it's a it's it's difficult and i think that's what happens to people very often too but um it's it you know our our animals certainly are carriers and and um why some get sick and show symptoms and others don't you know that's a a, probably a key to the same thing in humans i'm i'm curious how the how the world of you're, you're showing this film, uh, I'm 
certainly in a lot of places. And I'm wondering, given there's a lot of pol political implications in what's obvious there, so I'm wondering how are people responding to that situation and what are they imagining that they uh, want to invest their time in in terms of either professional people or, or ordinary, you know, regular everyday citizens? How, how are they responding to it politically? I'm not sure what you mean by how are they responding politically? Like who? Well, I mean, this, this is a very inspiring and angering um, uh, and, and, and also confusing at the same time. But at the same time, I mean, the way, the, way the film touched me anyway, <clears throat> I mean, I've, I'm a practitioner. I've had Lyme's patients for 30 years. So, I mean, I've been through diff several different waves of, of political realities around mm -hmm. the topic. And I'm just curious, this is the most compelling film or compelling presentation that I've seen on the topic. So I'm wondering what change that's then inserted into the marketplace of ideas in terms of what people are imagining that they might want to try to do vis-a-vis -vis the medical industry, vis-a-vis yeah. -vis the insurance industry, vis-a-vis -vis whatever. Uh -huh. Okay, well, that's it's a good question. I'll sort of get you caught up on, on some things. After the film came out uh, almost a year and a half ago, um, the results of the Attorney General in Connecticut came out and basically... Um, bro he brokered an agreement with the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, that writes the Lyme uh, disease treatment guidelines, to uh, reconvene a panel to, to re-examine the, the guidelines. And um, none of the people, it, they, didn't, they didn't admit any wrongdoing and they didn't, they didn't um, say that anything would necessarily change, but they would, ha they would have a new panel. None of the people on the panel could have conflicts of interest. Um, and then they would, they would uh, get testimony. But they also said that nobody on the new panel could, could have earned more than, I think it was like $10,000 a year treating Lyme patients. So, that, so all the, the experts, the Lyme specialists, the ones treating Lyme disease day in and day out couldn't be on this panel. Um, they reconvened the panel, then they, they took testimony in July. Um, there were patient advocates and, and other experts. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't televised, it was broadcast on the network. Um, and it was fascinating for anybody who saw that, because, uh, did anybody see that here? Okay, just a couple people here saw it. Um, you know, the, the sort of mantra of the IDSA physicians has always been science, science, science. You know, show us the science, then, then we'll believe. Science, um, they're not being scientific. And anybody who watched this would say, wait a second, there's science everywhere. You're the ones who are not being scientific. So it was a real sort of like turning point. I think if you could sort of measure it, there was a real sense that, that something, something was shifting there. Um, uh, the, the, the film was mentioned. The IDSA after that actually asked for copies of the film to be, give, to be given to all the new panel members. So I found that came from their PR people, and I thought, well, it's either, you know, very sinister, you know, <laughs> attempt, or, or, or really maybe very um, genuine. Um, so the 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 the, the uh, says I, I guess at one point they said about the film that it was um, long on emotion and short on fact. I did hear that at one point. Um, there's been pushback from various people from the IDSA. Um, but the film has made a difference. I mean, certainly among, um, you know, in terms of sort of grassroots activism, 
and in public awareness. Um, also in, in media, the kind of media attention that the issue has gotten, and the and the way, and this is, I think, you can also look at this in sort of a historical cultural perspective in terms of, you know, when we start looking at an issue and not having to balance it, you know, like, like, um, uh, you know, I'm sure not too long ago we could look at civil rights issue and you'd have someone who supported civil rights and someone else who 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 said that it's wrong. Black and white people can't, shouldn't marry, and it's in the Bible, and and you had to sort of give it equal say. Now that's unheard of, you know. And it's 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 sort of it's also happening. Um, I think in gay rights that's starting to shift somewhat, um, and and I've seen that shift in in the Lyme disease issue. No longer do you have to get someone from from the uh, you know the opposing side. Um, so. These are small shifts, but I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely seeing it. The the legislate the every member of the House and Senate uh, Health Appropriations Committee got a DVD um, from a legislator, someone in Congress. Um, it's been used in state legislatures um, uh, for for advocacy, and I understand that President Obama got a personally got a copy. Um, if we get the film, um, if we, we, the film's been in theaters, but very limited release, we're doing an Oscar campaign to try to get an Oscar nomination. So all of this will help bring about um, uh, visibility, exposure, and, and change, both and in, in terms, terms of, of policy and, and public and consciousness. In terms of, in terms of the, the, uh, the financial industry, the, the, the insurance people, and all, of course, it, so it's early, too early to think about that part. The, the political part's coming first, and then conceivably when, that, when those forces change their picture, then, then the money thing maybe would follow. Vaccine. Okay. Um, one of the follow-ups on that, and I thank you very much, Andy, for all the work you've done, is that I have Lyme disease I've had for 20 years. I also want to thank my doctor. Um, when, my, when my daughter was diagnosed, um, we live in West Marin, and um, I got angry. I mean, I've been angry for years about it, but I really decided to get into it. And there is a very, very strong political network going on. The California Lyme Disease Association is an incredible organization. I found in my research, you know, the Rachel Carson of the Lyme disease movement, Phyllis Mervine, who lives up in Ukiah. Um, there are people working behind the scenes all the time. One of the, the new things legislatively that has happened is there's H.R. 1179, which is the House bill uh, that's now in the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, that, that basically is asking um, that there be um, independent, not independent, I should say, committees within the NIH and the CDC that will oversee research to be done on Lyme disease and to acknowledge chronic Lyme disease. Um, so that's just a beginning step because there needs to be lots of research because as you said, treatments vary from individual, from one person to the next, there isn't one course that's necessarily going to work for every individual, and there needs to be more research. That's one thing I, I want to comment on. Um, but the, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about the film that I didn't see that came up, because from the political side of it, uh, well, two things. Um, one is the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, which you kind of got into a little bit with the IDSA. Um, I, I want to know if you had had any uh, the Vital Act of 1980 was basically um, 
allowed universities and researchers to uh, patent their illnesses, and that was the act. Have you heard of anything about the repeal of that in the health care bill? Um, to me, it's critical uh, for any research for all of these diseases, as you described, that, that you know, uh, autism or MS or any of those diseases to um, get the privatization out of it. Um, and the other question I had is the question of the blood supply. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to uh, San Ramon for a group of Lyme people getting together, and I went back to D.C. For, um, to talk about this legislation. And that question came up, but it's never really strongly pursued. Um, I know that one doctor said, well, that the Borrelia, the one Borrelia that they all talk about, um, doesn't last in the blood in blood very long, but no one seems to know what happens with Babesia or any of that. Have you heard any more updates about that? It is of concern with about the, about our blood the, supply. Oh. Um, so those are the two things that the HR, I mean, not, excuse me, the um, Bidwell Act of 1980 and the blood supply. Yeah. Have you had any follow-up? Well, I'll just say about the, the Bidwell Act, um, no. Um, but we, I mean, I, we, we bring it up in the film. We don't call it the Bay-Dole Act. We, we talk about it in terms of deregulation. And um, boy, what a mess we're in yeah. because of that and because of a lot of um, instances of deregulation. You know, what seemed to some like a great idea at the time is really coming back to bite us, literally. And um, that is an example. I mean, how, you know, how can you expect, how can you have a check, checks on, on medical research you know, when it when it when universities, when the researchers are entering into the commercial fray in in the way that they are. I'd like to inject just a little the way in which the disease can be a metaphor. I mean, this is 1980. This happened. Ronald Reagan. We're talking about the current economic crisis we're in. Yeah. And it's an enormous sense in which deregulation, you know, became a paradigm for uh, government activity, and it's we're feeling the expense of it, you know, the price of it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Let me make just a quick suggestion. We should probably do another 15 minutes or so of questions, and there are a lot of hands up. So let me just suggest that we get a bunch of questions and comments out and then let both of you respond to them. Would that be okay? So who else wanted to speak? Yeah. Two, two major questions I have. Um, one of them is uh, about these co-infections. I know I've been pointed in the direction that I may have Bartonella, and I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, I've, I've resisted getting involved in this whole antibiotic thing. They seemed more dangerous to me 20 years ago when I first ran into this than perhaps the illness. And maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right, but are some of the other co-infections any more tr treatable? Is one question. And the other thing is that I noticed when he said something about not wanting to see the video, you guys all turned and looked at that. <laughs> and, and yet I know that um, as a person who I feel like, compared to most people I know, in almost all realms, is not into avoiding the truth, is willing to look at it. That is a factor in this. You know, and I'm willing to come here. I was, I was surprised some people were not at this movie. But it is threatening and it is scary, and probably even more so if you feel like you have it. Because um, it made me feel almost nauseous mm -hmm. um, to, to look at that. And, and did I make a mistake 20 years ago in not pursuing antibiotics, or did I do the wrong thing? I don't know. But. Um, there's a place of, you know, maybe it's the illness model, you know, that when you try to go in getting rid of these things, it's almost like you feel like you get worse, you know, and you may. I mean, and I'm not saying that their treatments don't work in their things, but for many of us out there, I don't know if that was the right course to do a lot of antibiotics. 
but, but there's a phenomenon. <laughs> there's something going on there that um, this is this is very threatening. You say it's not scared. No, don't be scared. I mean, you don't want to be scared of nature. People have moved to this area. Don't want to be frightened that it's going to destroy their life, and even more so if you already have it and you can feel it is doing something inside of you. I mean, I don't know. There's just a, I have a lot of questions, um, and including the whole financial thing. This is an, a, a, a disease that only the rich can afford. Um, you know, and, and, they, and even they can't buy health. Yeah, even they can't buy health, but nobody else can even get diagnosed. Um, there's a lot of, lot of, um, lot of things. Thanks going for that on. comment. Let's get some of the other questions. Yes. Go ahead, Paul. Sure. Um, has anyone else picked up Dr. McDonald's research and where does his theory stand right now? Um, okay, great. And you had a question? Yes, I specifically wanted to uh, have you offer an opinion. Um, I look at the Lyme disease associations and several different societies, and they tend to focus entirely on a tick as the only vector rather than the primary vector. And um, I, I just have something to read from Dr. Klinghart, who is in the film. He says, we are aware that in endemic areas in the U.S., up to 22% of stinging flies and mosquitoes are carriers of BB and co-infection. Mm. And yet, something is holding back this information. Great, so that's three, and I can't, we'll come back to you all, but let's take those three. <laughs> Uh, the um, blood supply. Uh, so uh, we know for sure that there are cases of, of these kinds of infections after organ transplant, okay? particularly Babesia reported in, in the literature. It's something to be concerned about. The cost of screening the blood supply, it, it's huge. It's a, it's a huge financial problem. And so there will be resistance. Uh, it's also true that, that Borrelia um, it doesn't hang out in the blood supply as much as in other tissues. Uh, so maybe it would be even more important for Babesia. But it's something that has to be thought about and there will be a lot of resistance to that. Uh, yeah, I'll pick up on just a, a couple of these. Uh, one is the tick issue because that gets me ticked a lot. <laughs> and I didn't want, I mean from the very beginning I didn't want to make a tick-centric film. That I didn't, because every time we hear about Lyme disease, we see a picture of tick of a tick, and um, so it was it was a, a real conscious effort not to do that in the film, and uh, to try not to do it in in publicity, etc. Because I agree with you, it's not all about a tick, uh, and I and I hope that that the film helps helps um, bring about that awareness, shifts the awareness away from just a tick, because also not only is it possibly or probably untrue, it also um, creates a sort of uh, a sense of us and them, of, of, you know, that we don't need to worry, it doesn't, I, we live in the city, um, we don't have ticks here, so it's, it's um, I, I think it's important, I'm glad you brought that up. And as far as Dr. Um, Dr. McDonald goes, uh, he, he was working with someone named Ava Shapi. And she's continuing the biofilm research. 
uh, and um, so it's 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 going on. Um, that's about all I can say right no, now. No breakthroughs. No, no breakthroughs. No, no, nothing has been published in any major major medical journal. Journal, um, but um, but but it's it's ongoing. And I'll I'll respond to your question. If you still have symptoms, you can probably be helped. And is it a co-infection? You know, is it what is it? That's something that we someone would have to go over with you on an individual basis. Um, it is complex, and antibiotics are, um, they have side effects, and sometimes serious side effects, and so they're not always the right solution for everybody. Um, and it is very expensive, and currently our system is not set up to support, support treatment for people, except for people who can afford, you know, the, to go and see the doctors that, uh, that are currently treating it, which usually isn't covered by health insurance. It's usually um, <laughs> health insurance. Um, you know, it's some health insurers would consider it fraud to treat and when we don't have uh, definitive tests. And so it gets very complicated. It's, it's a really, it's a tricky situation. The whole system, part of what we are all talking about is that the system is not necessarily set up for with the public's best interest in mind. Right. And that's an understatement, really. And, um, and the different interests that are involved, it is really, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's terrible, it's insidious. It's, uh, the more you look, the uglier it gets on many different levels. Uh, so one of, the, one of the tasks we're faced with is learning what needs to be learned and stepping up and making our, you know, here, having our voices be heard, speaking up and saying what needs to be said. Let's just take a few more questions. There was one over here, yeah. Go ahead. So the, the whole talk of a possible conspiracy theory on a, on a couple of different levels, you know, whether or not that's it's some, um, you know, causative factor for the for the existence of Lyme disease but more of interest to me is um, you know why is there really an incentive for the medical establishment to deny that chronic Lyme disease exists and w what is the you know the, I, I do believe that like you know these, they talk about in the film that there's some level of a conspiracy theory there but it doesn't necessarily make sense that that is um, you know, a, a financial one. I mean, if there are people who, are, who, are, who stand to gain from patents or from treatments or, you know, various other aspects of it, it, it might be to their benefit to think that chronic Lyme disease exists. Um, and also, you know, for insurance companies to deny treatment up front, you know, it seems to me that's a much more costly decision in the long run because of the amount of complications, the amount of tests that occur, the amount of hospital visits, etc. Um, so I wonder if you just comment on from, you know, making the film what you unearthed a little bit and if there's something there. Great, we'll hold that, yes. And that's I another whole panel. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up Summers, Montauk Point, and I've been tick bait for 60 years, and I've dug out thousands of them um, from myself. I, I don't have any diagnosis. I don't know yet whether I have a cluster of symptoms that should have been diagnosed. Um, my, and Gano, of course, was in my neighborhood. Um, he got death threats, you know. I don't, you know, I mean, he was hounded by the medical community in his early years. I've had friends that have lost their spleens from babiosis and 
Um, I think that there is, and I'm more of a tree hugger and a, and, a, and a gardener than a lot of the people that have come down with very severe cases of Lyme. So I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, mice infestation, rodents, things like that, other kinds of carriers, that, and then simply whether or not you ever had a tick that you dug out of your, out of your skin. Um, my um, concern, as you spoke about the cluster of symptoms, is that it's almost worse to have the diagnosis because of the way our, our medical system is set up. I mean, better maybe to just, you know, get an infection on your arm or something and say, well, you know, <laughs> treat this, name this, it's in the, it's, it's in the uh, you know, medical okay, you know, for my insurance company, they'll cover this. Don't tell them that I might have, you know, the underlying cause really being Lyme or some other thing that is the popular um, um, debatable, you know, label. Great. And yes? Yeah, uh, I have Lyme also, um, and Babesia, and my doctor's here too. <laughs> um, and hello, all the new ones. <laughs> but I had a question about the CD57 and what you thought of that, and I've been having conflicting results with that. I also have another question with, uh, I have a young lady which I really think she has Lyme and fortunately I brought her to my doctor. And uh, But she was diagnosed, first of all, with lupus and all these different things and transverse myelitis and microplasma. But she ends up having um, severe lesions in her spine and in her brain. And I was wondering, what do you know about the lesions or being, you know, with being diagnosed as MS, but multiple lesions and Lyme. Great. Three questions. So, Andy, do you want to start? Why don't you, you want to start with the okay. multiple lesions? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Mm -hmm. So there are many things that produce these lesions. Some, sometimes they're called demyelinating lesions. Sometimes they're, they can be caused from other things. But there are many people walking around with abnormal brain MRIs and spinal cord MRIs who don't have symptoms. And there are a number of people who have Lyme and have these lesions and don't have MS. So the diagnosis of MS is not based on that. It's, it's that plus other things. And it's, it's, it's very complicated, but one does not equal the other necess you know, necessarily. It all has to be taken in context. She's had so many different diagnoses. Yeah. Well, then it's unlikely that it's just MS. Okay, it may be MS and some other things. And luckily, she has a good doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Andy? Okay. What, what was the, the other one, the other question? Well, there was the question Is about the conspiracy. Okay. And what was the other question? CD57. Oh, CD57. Yeah. Vectors. Right. Right. Go for right. the CD57. Okay. Right. CD57 and vectors. Quickly. The CD57 is a, a measure of natural killer cell function. It's a measure of immune system function. It is... It seems to be dysregulated, not just Lyme, but other chronic fatiguing illnesses, and it doesn't seem to correlate with treatment response necessarily in my patients. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So it's supporting information, but I don't use it as any kind of a definitive test. That's my opinion. Other doctors have a very different opinion. Uh, vectors, it, um, it's not just Lyme, but other tick <laughs> we call tick-borne infections, are almost certainly transmitted by more than just ticks. <laughs> um, I don't want to get into much more than that, but I would agree with that. Um, okay. I'd rather not use the word conspiracy because that gets us into trouble. 
And, and as you saw in the film, we didn't even address the issue of Plum Island and the and the uh, that the whole issue of the potential the biological and the Nazi. Um, uh, I mean, there were enough Nazi-like characters without that, so we didn't need it for the drama. But um, it's it's very complicated. It's one that we asked ourselves all the way through the film was just the questions that you're asking. Uh, I think the easiest one is to look at the insurance question because it's short-sighted. I mean, that's just the way the system is. It's short-sighted, and um, if, if the insurance industry were able to look down the road, not just in terms of Lyme and this issue, it might be different. If they had but, learned from AIDS, for instance. But, yeah, and, I mean, the, the, the obvious thing, though, is if they don't want to, if they don't, need to, to pay out, then they're not going to want to, so they're going to want to find a reason not to. And it's very convenient to have the IDSA Lyme treatment guidelines as a foil to, to do just that. You know, the, 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 the more difficult question is, is why, um, why this, uh, the intransigence, I guess, about um, chronic Lyme disease. And, I, you know, I think if, from a systemic perspective, it's more profitable. Like a chronic, chronic, chronic illness is more profitable, period. Um, but if, you look at, if you're looking at it in terms of these, these specific, this is sort of, we call them the Lyme gatekeepers, they do have very, um, they do have, uh, as we mentioned in the film, um, conflicts of interest. They have, they have commercial interests in their products. They have patents on... Um, on potential vaccines, past vaccines, potential vaccines, test kits, um, and um, um, and they're tied into the insurance industry as well. So it's a, I'd say it's a question of um, ego on a very basic level that these are the people who don't want to give up the mantle <coughs> they've held for you know twenty something years, um, but it's deeper than that, and and and. You know, you have to look at it in terms of we all do what, we all believe what's in, we all believe to be true what's in our best interest. So even without putting a sort of conspiracy angle on it, I think a lot of these guys do believe that they're right. You know, it just so happens that their belief supports their pockets, <laughs> you know, or their university's pockets. or, or um, um, But there's there's... We have a lot of inform like very detailed information about this in terms of what are those patents and what are those conflicts. Um, we couldn't we couldn't get into all that in the film, but every when you saw the the uh, when we had the the the, uh, the windows with the with the individuals, that that corresponds to the to the people on the. I mean, it directly corresponds to the to the people. So if you're able, if you the look at that, of the photographs are the right. same as the windows. Yeah. It's the same as the windows. Graphically, that was very powerful. And you know, and if you notice that uh, um, Dr. Shapiro and Dr. Wormser were implicated in almost every conflict of interest. So, um, uh, if you're really interested in pursuing it, um, we have people who could get you more information. Can I? I'd like to comment on that too. So um, the peer pressure for a doctor to think the same way that all the other doctors think is enormous. And if you don't think the way other doctors think, you are kicked out of the club. Mm -hmm. You may not have patients referred to you. You may have a complaint against you. And if you have a complaint against you, you could lose your license. And all the money and time that you've invested in, the edu in your education and training could 
go out the window and you might be looking for a new job. And so I think that even if there weren't conflicts, financial conflicts of interest, the, um, the, the culture and the stranglehold on certain, you know, on doctors to have just a certain, um, you know, to, to toe the line and to, to think the same way everyone else thinks, that is enormously powerful. And as humans, we tend to be sheep, unless <laughs> we have the courage and guts and, and vision to step up and do something different and rise above that. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. And it's a good reminder to all of us to really stand up for what you believe in and, and step out there. Because I, I, think that, I think that is just as important as any financial conflicts of interest. I think uh, we should call a close to the formal part, but I'm hoping you folks will s stay around for just a little bit to answer individual questions. So, Eric, do you want to thank our guests here? I would like to be delighted to thank Wynn Bertrand and Andy Abrahams-Wilson for being here today at Commonweal with us, Andy for showing the film. I want to encourage you to look at the um, Open Eye Pictures website, which shows the other work that Andy is also involved in, the other films, which are equally compelling in their own way. And um, to thank Michael Lerner for um, acting as an eminent squeeze that he is and uh, giving a, sharing with us. Thank you all. Thank you.